this morning, I'll be reading from Galatians 3 and 4. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring would come to whom the promise had been made. And it was ordained through angels by a mediator. Now a mediator involves more than one party, but God is one. Is the law then opposed to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could make alive, then righteousness would indeed come through the law. But the scripture has imprisoned all things under the power of sin, so that what was promised through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were imprisoned and guarded under the law until faith would be revealed. Therefore the law was our disciplinarian until Christ came, so that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer subject to a disciplinarian. For in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. As many of you as were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male and female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. My point is this. Heirs, as long as they are minors, are no better than slaves though they are the owners of all the property. But they remain under guardians and trustees until the date set by the Father. So with us. While we were minors, we were enslaved to the elemental spirits of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order to re redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as children. And because you are children... God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a child. And if a child, then also an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to beings that by nature are not gods. Now, however, that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and beggarly elemental spirits? How can you want to be enslaved to them again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid that my work for you may have been wasted. All right. Good morning. It's great to be here with you. I neglected to introduce myself earlier when I was up here, but if you don't know me, my name is Hannah, and I've been here at Narrate since 2016. I get to lead our hospitality team and be a part of planning our scattering events, so I have to thank Jolyn's working hard today, and thanks team for working hard, so I get to focus on speaking this morning. We've got a really kind of interesting part of the text that we get to go through. Thanks, Jim, for reading it so well. That was great. I want to give you a little roadmap of where we're going to go this morning. I want to start out by giving you the main point. Like, why are we here? Okay, I love it when I'm reading like an article or, or uh, listening to someone and they, they're like, here's the main point. Because I'm a note taker and I like to write in big letters. Main point, here you go. So we're going to go through our main point and then this section is pretty interesting so we're just going to take it kind of chunk by chunk. We won't go through the whole thing but we'll take it chunk by chunk and really kind of figure out what Paul is saying to the people of Galatia. And then at the end we'll just touch base on why it matters. This letter was written a long time ago from Paul to the people of Galatia. Why does it matter for us today? What can we learn about God from this for us today? 
So that's our plan for the next, I don't know, 25 minutes or so. And here's our main point as promised. So our main point for this morning is this. God has made himself known to us through his personal presence, the Holy Spirit. God has given us his own self-revelation. He's a God who desires to know us and to be known by him through his Holy Spirit. So that, if you don't hear anything else, take in the main point, and now you can zone out to lunch if you want. All right, so getting into this section, Paul asks a couple of questions, and the first question he asks is this, question number one, why then the law? That's a pretty good question, because about right now, I have the same question. If these rituals and laws and traditions don't matter for who is in or out of God's family, then why do we have the law in the first place? Well, don't worry, Paul goes on to answer his own question. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring would come to whom the promise had been made. And it was ordained through angels by a mediator. Now, a mediator involves more than one party, but God is one. I don't know about you, but I have a lot more questions now that I've read Paul's answer. So real quick, the mediator he's talking about is Moses. And so through Moses, God has given the law to the ancient Israelites because of transgressions. I'm really glad he's so clear. It's a little sarcasm. So I often find that it's easier for me to understand the text if I can relate it to myself and to a fun story. So, fun story time. Over Christmas break, my husband and I got to host family for Christmas. It's a big deal. We got to host Christmas dinner. And so we had six adults and three kids staying in our house for like five days. Now, we don't have kids of our own, but we have a niece who's three and a half, a nephew who is three, and another nephew who is 10 months old or was 10 months old at the time. And so if you don't have kids, there's a lot you don't have to think about. There's a lot you don't have to worry about. So for example, we have some really impractical furniture. We have a white rug, which as I say that is really dumb, (laughs) but I like it. So we've got a white rug. We have this cactus with thorns or spikes well within reach of a three-year-old. We've got this, I have this really cool ceramic vase that my grandfather brought back when he was stationed in Spain in like the 60s. That thing's just sitting on the floor underneath the treacherous cactus. We have cupboards that open wide. They don't have the little, like, I don't even know what they're called, like the safety latch things, all right? So our 10-year-old nephew discovered real quick our pots and pans are very accessible to him. And in our guest bedroom, we've got kind of an Africa theme going on, and so we've got these cool, like, soapstone and ceramic things that we've brought back. Scott has this cool, like, knife that he brought back from Kenya. (laughs) It's on a rickety shelf that's literally leaning against the wall. (laughs) And so my brother-in-law, real quick after they were there, my brother-in-law comes upstairs and he goes, so half of Africa's in the closet? (laughs) Just just so you know where it's at. There's a lot of danger down there. We had to put it in the closet. So like I said, there's a lot of things we, we don't have to think about. One of those things is rules. And so I was observing over the break as we're all in our house. There's a couple different little family units. I was observing some of the rules that parents give their kids. And some of them made sense to me, right? When we sit down to eat a meal, it should be a pretty balanced meal. We should have some fruits and veggies and protein and so on. And if things go well, which 
I learned that sometimes things don't go well at mealtimes. <laughs> sometimes there's a lot of crying and pouting. Like, I didn't know. But anyway, sometimes things don't go well. But if you're, you're at my house, you're at, we're, Scott and I are the cool aunt and uncle, so we can work out like some Teddy Grahams under the table or some Oreos behind the counter. We can work out dessert if things don't go well. But some of the rules uh, I found were really interesting. Like the two older kids, they got some toys for Christmas that kind of had little pieces that broke apart or could fall apart. And so one of the rules was they had to play with those in a, in a bedroom kind of away from the baby. And that makes sense because the 10-month-old is all about like hand to mouth. Everything that he can grab is going in his mouth. The second rule, as, as we're kind of hanging out, we're going around town, is every kid, when we cross the street, kids had to hold the hand of an adult. Kind of made sense. And so the interesting thing, though, I thought about these, these rules was they only make sense for a certain amount of time, right? Like, as adults, we're not walking around thinking, what can we shove in our mouths, and we're not waiting to hold someone's hand before we cross the street. These rules make sense for a certain amount of time, and then we grow up. And then we learn how to better engage in our environment in a more responsible way. So why then the law? To get back to our question on the law, right? Israel needed some guidelines or some rules or some laws for a specific amount of time. So God gave the Torah for a specific and time-limited purpose. So we know the Torah is, is the five books, the first five books of our Old Testament Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And there's some pretty bizarre laws. If we're reading Leviticus, now who's read Leviticus lately? Yeah, no, I don't, I don't read it often. It's interesting, but I don't spend a lot of time in there. Um, there's some pretty bizarre rules. There's rules and laws about what, when animals are clean and when they're unclean, about how to properly give your burnt offerings, uh, how oh, you shouldn't wear clothes that are woven together with two different kinds of fabric, some pretty bizarre laws. There's like 613 laws or commands in the Old Testament that don't make sense to us today. And I think N.T. Wright sums it up pretty well with this next quote. Moses was not given the task of bringing Jews and Gentiles together into the promised single family. Rather, it was always God's plan that he would hold Jews and Gentiles at an arm's length from one another. So Israel needed some restrictions. They needed to have boundaries because, because God didn't want them sliding into the pagan worship or the behaviors of their neighbors and the other nations around them. They were called to stand apart and they were called to be God's chosen people here on earth. If we look at Deuteronomy, one of the books in the Torah, Deuteronomy 14.2 says this, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. Let me read it in here, that's a little tiny. For you are people holy to the Lord your God. It is you the Lord has chosen out of all the peoples on earth to be his people, his treasured possession. So the Torah was given for this specific limited time purpose and Paul is saying to the Galatians, that time is now past. We are done with that time. Which leads us to question number two. Question number two posed by Paul is this. So then is the law opposed to the promises of God? That's a, a pretty good question. I think I'd have that question too. And again, he answers himself here and he says, certainly not. For if a law had been given 
that could make alive, then righteousness would indeed come through the law. So the law was meant to last for, again, the specific and time-limited purpose until the promise could be fulfilled. Verse 22, but the scripture has imprisoned all things under the power of sin, so that what was promised through the faith of Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So Paul's saying this, the law was fine for that certain amount of time, but now it's kind of like going to prison. It's kind of like being restricted. And so Galatians, do you want to move backwards and live under these restrictions? Or do you want to move forward and live in the faithfulness of Christ? So moving on, we're just going to keep trucking through this section. But now that faith has come, we are no longer subject to a disciplinarian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. As many of you as were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. So this phrase, this disciplinarian, I thought was pretty interesting. And what I learned as I was reading for this morning was there was a role that was usually occupied by slaves in Paul's day, and they would kind of take care of kids for their parents, and they'd get them to school, and they'd make sure they ate their meals and stayed out of trouble. I think we could think of it today as like a tutor or a babysitter or some kind of mentor. And again, it's on this theme of, okay, when the kid is young, when they're little, they need this extra guidance, and then we grow up, and we no longer need that extra kind of guidance and help. So this would have been a scenario that would have been super familiar to the Galatians at this time that Paul's writing them a letter. And N.T. Wright kind of sums up this section like this. It was not through the law, but through the faithfulness of the representative Israelite, Jesus the Messiah, In him the promise has now come true, not for one ethnic group only, but for all who believe, Jew and Gentile alike. So real quick, let's just review the promise. Uh, I think it was last week Adam talked about how we can think about our Bibles like in two sections. And the first section is Genesis 1 through 11. And then the second section is Genesis 12 all the way through the end of Revelation. And so what hinges there in the middle is this section in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. God is talking to Abraham, and he is saying, I'm going to make you a great nation, go forth. And picking up in verse 3, he says this, I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all families of the earth shall be blessed. So what Paul's doing here is he takes what Israel would have known of themselves, God's chosen people meant to stand apart, and he's moving it one step farther. And he's saying, hey Israel, okay, when you choose to move forward, or now anyone that chooses to move forward in Christ, it's like putting on a new identity. Which leads us to the last couple verses in chapter three. And these might sound familiar, if they don't, no worries. There is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There's no longer male or female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So what is Paul communicating in this section to the Galatians? He's saying that these identity markers are irrelevant for who is in or out of God's family. These things don't matter when we're talking about who gets to be a part of God's family. 
You know, he's not saying they don't matter in general. We know that he still distinguishes Jew and Gentile. That's kind of what we're going through in Galatians. We know in the letter to Philemon, he's kind of pleading on behalf of a slave. And we definitely know that Paul has a lot to say about maleness and femaleness. So just a side note, if you wanna nerd out with me, I just got a book called Paul and Gender, and it goes through all the different instances where Paul talks about gender, and I would love to buy you coffee and we can chat all about the things that have to do with Paul and gender. There's a lot in there. So he's not saying these things don't matter, period. He's saying in concern to who's in and out of the family, these things don't matter. And I think Paul's doing something a little bit interesting here too. What do we know about ancient Israel at this time? It's super patriarchal, it's very hierarchical. And so the Pharisees, the religious leaders at the time, they had this little prayer that they would pray. And it said something like, God, thanks for not making me a woman, a slave, or a Gentile. Right? And so I think that Paul is doing his own little kind of subverting of the culture here. And he's saying, "Uh, hey guys, these things don't matter for who is in or out. And it's easy for us reading this section today to kind of just breeze over just how huge or how meaningful it would have been for Paul to be communicating these specific identity markers. So summing up chapter three, I think chapter three, or at least our section of chapter three this morning is this. God promised Abraham a single family And in the Messiah, God has created that at last. And if you belong to the Messiah, you belong to Abraham's family. Cool, we're done with chapter three. We get to move into chapter four now. So before we go into chapter four, I want us to think about this section through the lens of the Exodus story. And this visual was helpful for me as I was thinking about this section. So if you want to close your eyes, you can close your eyes. But imagine there's a big stained glass window in front of you. And on the stained glass window is the Exodus story. So you have the Israelites enslaved in Egypt, and God raises up Moses. He leads them out of slavery, out of Egypt, into the wilderness. They receive the law. There's this promise of an inheritance. So we have our image of the Exodus on our stained glass window. And now we're going to look through that window and read chapter 4. So with us, while we were minors, we were enslaved to the elemental principles of the world. Or I think this morning it said elemental spirits of the world. This section, that that little phrase, elemental principles of the world, was a little confusing for me, but the best I can tell is that it means anything that's causing separation between Israel and the nations around them, or between Israel and God, so it could be something in the culture that's keeping them apart, or maybe even this desire to adhere to now the old law, anything that's causing separation. So before we go into this next little chunk, this is like Christian theology in a nutshell. It is so beautiful. So just listen to this next chunk. When the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman under the law, in order to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as children. And because you are children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a child. 
And if a child, then also an heir through God. So looking through the lens of the Exodus, what Paul is communicating here is that what has happened is much more deep and much more final. God has sent not Moses, but his son, that through Christ's death and resurrection, we too might, to become, might become a part of this family. And God sent not the law, but his spirit to dwell with us and within us. So through this action in Jesus and the Spirit, the one God of Abraham has now made himself known, not just by name and in action, but in personal presence. A human among human and his spirit meant to dwell with us. His own self-revelation meant just for us. So I was doing some reading and some listening on the Holy Spirit, and the Bible Project has some really great resources on the Holy Spirit or God's Spirit. And the Spirit translated into Hebrew is Ruach. I think you can see it on the image there, Ruach. So this is the way that the biblical authors talk about God's personal presence. But Ruach can also refer to a number of different things, all having to do with energy. So something that you can feel or experience, but that you cannot see. So wind would be translated as Ruach. Something we can experience, but we can't quite see. You know what else I learned that I thought was really, really cool? Guess what else is translated as Ruach? Breath. So take a big, deep breath. If you gotta stretch, go stretch, yeah, yeah, get it out. Okay, remember to exhale. So you feel that vitality in your body that you get from taking a big, deep breath. That's ruach, the same word that's used to describe God's personal presence or God's spirit. And just as breath keeps us alive, so God's spirit sustains life and creation. When does the Holy Spirit first show up in the text? Does anyone know? When does it first show up? It's like the first page, Genesis 1-2, God's Spirit hovered over the waters. So this is where I'd like to invite us back to our main point this morning. Our main point, again, remember, is this. God has made himself known to us through his personal presence the Holy Spirit. And that hasn't gone away since the time of Galatians. God's Spirit is still very present and active in our lives today. Another thing I thought was interesting just in this really neat section of four through seven is we first start to see kind of some hints of the Trinity happening here. So the Trinity and like Trinitarian theology starts those conversations happen past Paul, but it's really interesting. This is one of the earliest, if not the earliest letter we have to the ancient church, and I just think it's cool that we start to see that three-in-one understanding of the Christian God taking shape. So let's go on. We're in four verses eight. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to beings that by nature are not God's, this hint back to slavery and living under the law. Now, however, Paul writes, now, however, that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and beggarly elemental principles? How can you want to be enslaved by them again? 
So Paul's saying, what are you doing, guys? Like, we've got this new thing, God's spirit meant to dwell with us and within us, and not just within us, I think, but within our communities and our churches and our families and our relationships. The spirit's not just for me to go within me, but to dwell amongst us. Paul's saying, we've got this new thing. Why do you wanna, why do you wanna go back? Why do you want to return? I think one of my true talents in life is relating life and sometimes the text to clips from The Office. So we're gonna watch this clip and it's called Toby Returns. Poor Toby. Much like Paul is asking the Galatians, why do you wanna go back? Why would Toby wanna go back? He was in Costa Rica and poor guy, Michael hates him, but anyway. So how, as I promised, we're kind of wrapping up towards the end. How do we think about this today? What does this have to do with us? And I really struggled this week to kind of wrap up this message in, in an interesting and profound way. And so I was driving to work on Friday morning. I've got about a 15-minute drive, and the message is kind of rolling through my head, and I'm kind of thinking about, well, what's, this feels huge, like God's Spirit sent to be with us just for us. i got to have a big, big final, a big kind of sum-up statement. So just to take it back a little bit, every morning during the week I try to start my mornings with a quiet time, and that looks a little different depending on what season of life I'm in. Uh, but I had just done that Friday morning, I'm in my car going to work, and I was just trying to sum this up, and this little tiny question uh, kind of popped in my head as I'm, I, I'm trying to think about, like, okay, I believe this is true, what do I do with this? And this little tiny voice said, but do you live like it's true? And that really struck me. I thought, do I live as if I believe that God is present and active and moving within myself and the people around me and in my everyday life? And a second question was this for me. Do I pray as if that's true? Do I pray as if God is is right there listening and active? Or do I kind of treat God as my one-way communication and I kind of word vomit my prayers and then great, we'll check in at noon or maybe tomorrow or maybe in a few days? And so, as the band, you guys can come back up here, and ushers, you guys can come get ready for communion, but as we wrap up this morning, I wanna leave us with this question. What does it look like to live in a way that acknowledges God's presence? If we, as people who follow Christ and claim to know Christ, what might that look like for us or for you to live in a way that acknowledges God's presence and God's spirit with us and and within us, a God who desires to be known and known by us. What might that look like for us today? So we're gonna take communion together, and if you've not taken communion with us before, we've got bread over here, and then wine and juice over here, and Susie's got cups for us, so we're just gonna go out row by row, starting on the right. I am gonna pray, and then we'll jump in, and then I think Jim's gonna jump back up, we'll take communion together after we all get our elements so God thank you thank you for this morning thank you just for your spirit that you are not a distant God but a God that desires to be known and to be known by us thank you that you are here and moving and active in our everyday lives we ask that just as we take time for communion and as we go from here that that would just be on the forefront of our minds and our hearts. 
We love you. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Narrate Church, find us online at narratechurch.org or look us up on Facebook or Instagram. 